Yes, 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 here we are. Welcome, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. First and foremost, on this long Veterans Day weekend, I want to say thank you to all my veterans who may be listening and to those who aren't, as well as the families who support them. I give you a heartfelt salute for your service to this great nation. If you heard episode one, thanks for coming back. And if this is your first time, I'm glad you're here. Today, in the wake of midterm elections, we'll have our own campaign, this time for the Heisman Trophy and early NFL and NBA MVPs. So sit back, relax, and listen up to episode two of The Format. Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Michigan, Tua, Kyler Murray. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about when it comes to college football, the playoffs, and the Heisman Trophy. Buckle up. First off, I'm going to go ahead and continue my uh, election campaigns, this time for the Heisman Trophy, most outstanding player in college football this season. Most people have it kind of gift wrapped for uh, Tua Tagovailoa, outstanding quarterback for the Alabama Crimson Tide, who are undefeated, number one in the country, and are just rolling offensively and defensively. He's putting up some tremendous numbers and just having an amazing all-around season. He is clearly and obviously the best quarterback in Nick Saban's tenure. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, that is just giving the offense a totally different dimension, entirely more explosive from the quarterback position and in the passing game. That makes them even much more difficult to defend than they have been in any past iteration of a saving coach Crimson Tide team. Now, his main opposition for the Heisman, Oklahoma quarterback Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray is also tremendous. He's putting up numbers right now that exceed last year's Heisman Trophy winner, his Oklahoma teammate and now Cleveland Browns quarterback, Baker Mayfield. And uh, he's just he's just getting busy all over the field. So let's go to the numbers, shall we? We'll start off with Tua Tagovailoa, who's completing 68% of his passes, 27 touchdowns against only one interception. 2,361 yards, and the scary thing about his production is that he usually doesn't play in the fourth quarter of games because Alabama is just so dominant. Now, those type of numbers, uh, combined with the skill position weapons he has on the outside and, of course, Alabama's constant ability to run the football, just make them, uh, those numbers are out of this world, and he just looks tremendous. Now, we go to his opposition, Kyler Murray, the quarterback of the Oklahoma Sooners. Murray is uh, completing a tick more at 70% of his passes, has more touchdown passes at 31 to only five interceptions. He's already thrown for 2,689 yards on the season. And as I mentioned, he has better numbers than last year's Heisman Trophy winner, Baker Mayfield. 
and he's on a one-loss team. Now, you could probably argue if you're in the two-attack of Iloa camp that Kyler Murray has more passing yards and more passing touchdowns because he's playing all four quarters of just about every game, whereas two is out early in most cases. Um, I think that's a valid argument. What I would say, and I'm going to just tell you right now, my pick between the two would be Kyler Murray. I think he's just absolutely amazing. And that's no knock on Tua. That's no slight against him. If you look at the Bedlam game, which is uh, Oklahoma's annual rivalry game against in-state Oklahoma State, he definitely made his case for the Heisman. Um, He completed 21 of 29 throws, which is tremendous. He averaged 12 yards a pass, which means he was really going down the field. For the fourth time this season, he was over 400 yards of offense. And with that, two other times this season, he's been over 395, but just under 400. Now, don't get me wrong. He's had tremendous weapons as well. But I think the biggest difference in Tua and Kyler Murray is that for his team to be competitive and to keep winning, Kyler Murray has to do this. Why do I say he has to do this? Because Oklahoma doesn't have anywhere near the defense that Alabama has. Alabama has the luxury of having a defense that can completely shut people down. Kyler Murray doesn't have that. So everything that Oklahoma is trying to do in terms of wins and losses is on his shoulders. And he's done a tremendous job stepping up, producing, not only in blowouts, but also in big moments of close games where he needs to in order for his team to win. To me, that says the most outstanding player. Again, this is not a slight or a shot at Tua in any way. He's just having a tremendous season. But if it's me and I have that vote, I'm going with Kyler Murray. That said, we've kind of gotten the uh, Heisman talk out of the way for this week. Let's look at some of the huge games that we had this past weekend and then kind of turn our eye again towards the college football playoff. And I have some interesting thoughts on that. Um, Some of the big games, uh, number 10, Ohio State still has only one loss and they won a sloppy game uh, 26 to 6 over Michigan State. The reason I say that's sloppy, they were able to get some turnovers and win, but they didn't dominate the way we saw them dominating earlier in the season. Ohio State has tremendous talent, um, obviously lost one of their best players on defense, Nick Bosa, who has uh, shut it down for the season in order to prepare for the combine for his uh, upcoming entry into the NFL draft. But we know that Urban Meyer has tons of uh, talented bodies um, on that roster on both sides of the ball. But it's very interesting. We've seen some weaknesses of Ohio State get exposed in terms of the secondary um, giving up big pass plays, maybe not necessarily this week against Michigan State, but overall. We look at it, Michigan, Ohio State, excuse me, is still number 10, and they're still in position, depending on how everything shake out, to possibly make a run at that fourth playoff spot, maybe if they end up winning out and win the um, Big Ten championship game. Long way to go for that. Uh, I personally don't think they'll get by Michigan. I believe this is Harbaugh's year and Michigan's year. The way they are playing lights out defense and really pounding the rock. And then, of course, you have Shea Patterson running some excellent uh, option football. And uh, uh, star tailback Teron Higdon really pounding it between the tackles. Michigan looks like they've got all the ingredients to make it into the playoffs. Now, quick side note, if they were to make it into the playoffs, they would be number four. 
And as great as that defense is, they probably just don't have enough firepower to keep up with or score against Alabama. But, you know, that's for another day. So it would be very interesting. Second big game, we saw number one Alabama versus number one, uh, excuse me, versus number 16, Mississippi State. And Alabama just keeps on rolling, roll tide. They won that game 24 to nothing. And what I found interesting about that was that Michigan, uh, Mississippi State had the number six total defense in the country and the number seven passing defense, and it didn't seem to bother Alabama too much. Now, even though Alabama is still clearly the best team in the country, it looks as if they've slightly come back to earth in terms of, you know, putting up uh, 45 plus and 50 plus every game. The last few games, they've kind of come back to earth just a bit. So we'll see how they end up playing it out. And of course, you know, I'm sure they're looking forward to that big game against Georgia in the SEC championship. The next big game we looked at was number 24, Auburn versus uh, number five, Georgia. And as we know, Georgia lost to Auburn last season, but Georgia got revenge this season in a big win. So Auburn just kind of having a tough year overall. We'll see in the Iron Bowl if they can pull off a miracle just for the sake of playing spoiler and beating a rival when they play against Alabama. But as of right now, it looks like uh, Auburn is going to drop out of the top 25 once again. And Georgia just, you know, keeps on plugging away. When we, when we look at those last three spots, if everything continues on the path that it is, it should be very interesting between Oklahoma, Georgia, and Michigan for those last three spots. I believe that Michigan is going to win the Big Ten. I believe Oklahoma will most likely win the Big 12. And I believe that Alabama is probably going to win the SEC. So that theoretically should knock Georgia out of the running. But that last uh, committee decision between who do you put in, Oklahoma or Michigan, I, I think the resume, the body of work says that you have to put in Michigan. Um, speaking of Oklahoma, I actually had some debate last week um, with some Sooners fans on Twitter. And it kind of started out by them mocking my proclamation that if UC, UCF went undefeated again, even though I know it won't happen. It's my feeling that they should have an opportunity to play for the championship in the playoff. Um, we know that's not going to happen. The argument was kind of who has UCF played. And then um, the next argument was Notre Dame is overrated and that Oklahoma is better than Notre Dame. Now, I don't believe Notre Dame is overrated. They have done everything they were supposed to do. It's unfortunate that as I mentioned before, the teams that they beat that were ranked coming into the season haven't been able to continue winning. So that makes the schedule look worse than it is. But let's also look at the other side of this. Oklahoma so far has played one team that's currently ranked and they lost to that team. So how any Sooner fan, and again, I have no problem with Oklahoma, but how any Sooner fan can sit here and tell me Notre Dame is overrated and Oklahoma is better than them is kind of beyond me, especially since Army went down to Norman and almost upset Oklahoma on their own field. It took double overtime and a great defensive stop 
for Oklahoma to beat Army. That game shouldn't have been close. But, you know, fan is short for fanatic, right? <laughs> so that's kind of where we go there. At the end of the day, probably the, the two biggest games that are going to play a role in who gets that fourth spot, providing everything stays as it is, is going to be the 24 November Michigan-Ohio State game at the Horseshoe, which is absolutely huge. And um, the other one would be the Big 12 championship game, which looks like it's a collision course between Oklahoma and West Virginia. And the way these Big 12 teams are, you know, a lot of offensive firepower and don't play defense, we might be looking at like, you know, a 55 to 60 type score in that Big 12 championship game. If you like action, you like points, you like prolific passing offenses, then that's the game for you. Um, if you want to see smash mouth, physical football, the game for you would be up north in the shoe. And that would be uh, Ohio State and Michigan. I think both are going to be very entertaining. Just depends on what you like. But as I said, if everything plays out the way it kind of currently stands, I would say it should be Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and Michigan. And that would be a tremendous Final Four. Again, me personally, disappointed if UCF goes undefeated again, if they don't even get an opportunity to play for it. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And unfortunately, if you're not Power 5, this thing seems to be designed so that you won't get a shot. So I didn't get an opportunity to talk to you about the NFL last weekend, since NFL is king, i.e. the number one sport in the United States of America, we definitely want to take time and get into some of that today. Now, as I mentioned in the uh, opening of the show, uh, in the wake of the midterm elections, we can go ahead and hold our own elections. And what I mean by that is I'm going to uh, basically run a campaign for some two early MVP candidates for you. So the first one we're going to talk about is Drew Brees. Uh, Drew Brees is playing at an absolutely insane rate this season. I think one of the biggest things we got to look at is that he's on pace to smash his own single season completions record, which he set last year at 72% by completing 77% of his passes up to yesterday's game. That's crazy. We've never seen that before in uh, NFL history. It's just amazing what Drew Brees is doing. And the scary thing is, He's not doing it on dink and dunk plays. He's going down the field. That Saints offense is made to attack. So it's really tremendous and testament to the hard work he puts in, as well as the uh, tremendous uh, X's and O's that Sean Payton is doing on the offensive end of that, uh, of that team. He also has a touchdown interception rate of 21 to 1 this season. Yes, that's correct. He's thrown 21 touchdowns and only one interception for 2,600 yards. But not only that, he's getting the team success, okay? The Saints are currently 8-1. and one, And yesterday he had another three touchdowns and 265 passing yards. Now, I'm pretty sure his passing yards would be a little more gaudy if they didn't run the ball so much. They have two outstanding backs in Ingram and Alvin Kamara. So, they're getting it done on the ground as well as through the air. This Saints offense is looking nearly unstoppable. Drew Brees is my first candidate for 
NFL MVP. My second candidate is going to be Pat Mahomes out in Kansas City. I think one of the interesting things we need to look at as well is that guys who have really sharp and creative offensive-minded coaches in terms of X's and O's are really putting up tremendous numbers this season. You look into Jared Goff, your Pat Mahomes, your Drew Brees, those kind of guys, they're really uh, putting up great numbers because they have not only weapons on the outside, but they have coaches that are putting them in positions to be successful offensively. Back to Pat Mahomes. Now, he is 10 percentage points uh, below Drew Brees in terms of his completion percentage, sitting at 67%, which in most years would be outstanding, completing 67% of your throws in the NFL. That's tremendous. He has a TD interception ratio of 31 to 31 touchdowns, that is, to seven interceptions. He's also having an outstanding year. He's got 3,150 passing yards already on pace to put him over 5,100 for the season, which, you know, 5,000 yards, it doesn't happen too often. Now, of course, we're going to keep in mind a couple things when it comes to Pat Mahomes. He has tremendous weapons. He's got Tyreek Hill. He's got uh, Travis Kelsey. um, He's got Kareem Hunt out of the backfield. And he's got one of the best play designers in football in Andy Reid, one of the best play designers, and offensive coaches overall. So all these things are a huge help in terms of putting him in a position to be successful. As well, his team is sitting at a record of 8-1. and one, And as of right now, if the playoffs started, the AFC would go through Arrowhead Stadium, which we know is one of the loudest and most difficult places to play for opposing teams in the NFL. So that's That's very interesting. Now, with all of that said, it still bears watching to see what's going to happen down the stretch as Andy Reid has been known to have numerous late-season collapses with his better teams that start off really hot. But at this point, still 8-1 out of 9 games. They're looking really good. So we're going to have to sit back and see how it all plays out. I would say that my third candidate for MVP would be Todd Gurley out with the LA Rams. Now, when you look at Todd Gurley and the Rams, it's an interesting juxtaposition because they have tremendous weapons on the outside in the passing game. Uh, Jared Goff is really playing extremely well. And I think that's a testament to outstanding offensive coaching from Sean McVay. But what a lot of people don't realize is that what the Rams do, despite their tremendous passing numbers, is predicated off of an almost power running game with Todd Gurley. He's the engine that makes it go. So when you look at it, it actually harkens back to the greatest show on turf with those late 90s, early 2000 Rams teams with Kurt Warner and Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and Oz Hakeem. But the real linchpin was Marshall Falk, both on the ground and through the air. And that's a very similar thing that you have going on today with Todd Gurley. So We also have the Rams with only one loss on the season, and Todd Gurley is the reason why that's going. So your three candidates at this point, in my estimation, for NFL MVP are going to be Drew Brees, Pat Mahomes, and Todd Gurley. You can make your argument for all three of those. Any one would be an outstanding pick. If it was left to me, I would, in a close one, vote Drew Brees. Obviously, we still have some games left going through the rest of the season to see how it all plays out, but... 
if it were right now, I would go with Drew Brees because what we're looking at is statistical production almost like we've never seen before. But I think the most amazing thing with Brees is the records and the historical placement he's achieving throughout the course of his tremendous production individually in this season. So as I mentioned, he's breaking the record for uh, completion percentage, his own record, by the way. He's also, as of yesterday, just passed Brett Favre on the all-time touchdown list. So he's only number two. He reads as one of only four players in NFL history to have 500 career touchdown passes. He's this year become first all-time in career passing yardage. So we're looking at it. He's getting the team success. He's breaking his own records, uh, shattering NFL career marks, and he's continuing to set records. So all these things in concert, for me, are going to put Drew Brees as the NFL MVP. Something that amazes me about that, that would be Drew Brees' first ever MVP. So you look at all of his career accomplishments, Super Bowl winner, Super Bowl MVP, uh, multiple passing titles, um, all the records that he's set. And he has never yet won an MVP. So if he were to go ahead and uh, get that done this year, that would just be amazing, especially at this stage in his career, given everything that he's already done. There's also been a lot of talk about Le'Veon Bell and his refusal to come in with the Steelers based on uh, the Steelers franchising him for a second year in a row. Uh, basically, he's giving up about $14 million, which... You know, I can understand to an extent that he's saying he wants that long-term security for himself and his family. And it's easy for me, you know, who's never sniffed that kind of money to say, wow, $14 million probably could go a long way to providing that sort of long-term support for your family, especially being that a franchise pay number is guaranteed 100%. So you got to look at that. Where he's kind of hurt himself this season is the fact that James Conner, who was a very good uh, college running back and was played at Pitt and then was drafted, obviously, by Pittsburgh, has truly, absolutely taken advantage of his opportunity to get on the field in the absence of Le'Veon. Now, maybe you're not going to say that he's a better all-around running back than Le'Veon. However, the numbers that he's putting up are superior to Le'Veon Bell last year. He's averaging 4.7 yards per carry. He's got 771 rushing yards at this time to 10 touchdowns. One of the most interesting numbers about James Conner, though, is that already this season, he has eight rushes of over 20 yards, while Le'Veon had only three of those all of last season, which says to me that he is the player with the more explosive playmaking ability uh, running out of the backfield. And that's that's huge. So. Le'Veon really may well have hurt himself in this um, instance. Hopefully, he's able to get what he's looking for for himself and his family, but I think it's pretty fair to see it won't be from the Steelers, and we just don't know what it would be on the open market from anyone else. So, and to wrap up the NFL portion of this pod, just kind of want to give my uh, power rankings here. And I'm looking at the best teams. Now, going into yesterday, I definitely had... The Patriots right up there with the best teams, along with the Saints, Chiefs, quietly the Chargers and the Steelers, as well as, of course, the Rams. But based on what we saw yesterday from the Patriots as they pretty much laid an egg against the Titans, 
I think we kind of got to bump them down to that second tier. Now, no one is saying that this is the demise and the end of the Pats dynasty or anything like that. We know that they're consistently one of the best late season teams in football. And if anyone can look at the tape, make the adjustments where they need to be made, it would be Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. But based on just what we see up to this point, they're not quite up there with the elite teams in the league. Again, being the Saints, Chiefs, Steelers, Rams, and quietly the Chargers. So coming down the stretch for the rest of the NFL season, this is going to be very interesting and I'm thoroughly intrigued to see where those number one seeds are going to shake out in both the NFC and the AFC, whether it's going to be the Rams or the Saints. I guess if it keeps going like this, it probably would have to be the Saints with the tiebreaker. And in the AFC, is it going to be uh, the Chiefs, the Steelers, the Chargers, or even the Patriots? So we definitely have some great football to be played out. <laughs> In the spirit of our Heisman campaign, as well as our too-early NFL MVP campaign, let's go to our way-too-early NBA MVP campaign. The choices as of right now, if we were to vote today, yes, it's early. Probably going to be Stephen Curry and Kawhi Leonard. Let's talk about Steph Curry first. He is absolutely amazing, and even though he's kind of banged up at the moment, Immediately prior to that, the numbers that he were putting up were actually superior to those of his unanimous MVP season. And I think when you look at it, that's kind of what's scary. Steph is averaging just about 30 points per game this year. He's shooting 51% from the floor and 49% from three, as well as 92% from the free throw line. That's just unbelievable. And he's on pace to break his own record for made three-pointers in an NBA regular season. The next candidate that I would uh, put up for MVP would be Kawhi Leonard. Now, in Kawhi Leonard's first season as a member of the Toronto Raptors, he has these guys playing great. They are absolutely lights out with a team record of 12-1, and even though he's only played in seven games. Um... The team medical staff still seems to be taking it a little easy with him in terms of back-to-back, -back, you know, trying to preserve him for the uh, the long run of the NBA season as well as the playoffs. He's averaging about 24 points a game at 51% from the field, seven rebounds and three and a half assists, as well as two steals. And of course, we know that Kawhi is an absolute stopper on defense. So I think if we look at not just the numbers that he's putting up, but the impact that he's had on his new team, MVP, is absolutely a possibility for this young player. So if it's me and I have to make the choice today, right now, I'm going with Steph Curry. And that's no slight to the other players. The reason I would choose Steph Curry is because, again, he's on pace to break records. And even more so than that, it amazes me what he is able to do with the type of players that he has on his team. You have Kevin Durant averaging almost 27 a game, shooting 59% from the floor, getting six and a half rebounds, six and a half assists. The reason I think that's amazing is because 
despite what Steph Curry's doing, he needs the ball in his hands to do it. But he is able to do that with another player on his team, the caliber of Kevin Durant. As well, the incredible efficiency that it takes to get 30 points on, you know, roughly 15 shots if you're looking at the 50% from the floor is tremendous, being that you have another all-time great scorer who has the ball a lot of the times in order to get his own shot. Now, KD is not in any way a selfish player. It's just tremendous, and it's testament to just how special Steph Curry is. So for me, right now, I say vote Steph Curry. And the last item of NBA business is a monster trade that sends disgruntled Minnesota swingman Jimmy Butler to Philadelphia in a trade for Robert Covington, Dario Sarage, and a 2022 second round pick. This could be huge and could completely shift the balance of power in the East. If Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, and star point guard Ben Simmons can really gel and make it work, they could be a nightmare for anyone that they run into in the Eastern Conference playoffs. The Eastern Conference just got a lot more interesting. And before we go ahead and get on out of here, it's time for the Bruce Breakdown. So without further ado, here it is. So I'm sitting here looking at the uh, early stages of the NBA season, and I have two serious questions. In the East, before the season started, basically with the departure of LeBron James to the West and the Lakers, everyone pretty much anointed the Boston Celtics as the prohibitive favorite to win the conference and go to the NBA Finals. But then we look at the Celtics and we see that they're at 7-6 and six overall on the season and the sixth seed overall if the playoffs started today. And we're wondering what's going on. Then we flip back to the West. We look at the Lakers with their big offseason move. Obviously, the acquisition of LeBron and some more personnel decisions. And they're at 7-6, and six, currently at the 8th seed in the West. And we wonder, what's going on? We look at the Lakers last night. They barely got by the Hawks. If it wasn't for a last-second block, which might or might not have been a goaltend by new acquisition Tyson Chandler, the Lakers seriously could be sitting at 500 right now wondering what's going on and out of the playoff standings if they were to start today. Now, obviously, we know it's pretty early for all of that, but it's definitely uh, interesting to look at. And realistically, in the West, it's never too early to be looking at positioning. As we know, the distance between the third and eighth seeds in the West is often very close in terms of games, right? So you look at the Tyson Chandler acquisition. That was actually uh, looks like to be a very good pickup for them. Although me personally, when they did it, I wasn't exactly sure why, because you got JaVale McGee, who actually leads the league in blocks at three per game. And really, he's also giving you more production on the offensive end than you could have imagined at 14 points a game and about seven and a half rebounds. Now, there's nothing wrong with adding another tough-minded defender and smart player in Tyson Chandler. You're just curious to know, you know, why the Lakers would make that kind of move when you had McGee. But hey, if it works to their benefit, it works to their benefit. Um, another interesting thing I'm looking at is I'm looking at Lonzo Ball's numbers. Now, granted, he's coming off an injury and he's also getting used to playing with LeBron. But this is kind of what I saw LeBron's arrival as doing. Lonzo's points per game are down from last year to about eight and a half, as well his assists are down, um, as well as his rebounds to five and five. Rajon Rondo... He's scoring about 9.3 points per game, which is right around his career average. He's never been a big scorer. 
and his assists are down as well. The reason I bring this up, obviously, you get a player who is as impactful as LeBron James. Other guys' numbers are going to decrease. But you wonder, is his production worth the degradation of the long-term development of the players that were already on site when he got there? As well, we see Brandon Ingram, who most presumed coming into the season would be LeBron's running mate and his number two guy. We see his numbers have decreased, as has his three-point percentage and his two-point percentage from last year. So it's definitely interesting, and it really bears watching. Back to the East, talking about the Celtics, as I mentioned, going into the season, everyone kind of thought that they would be the prohibitive favorite and they'd be uh, the number one seed. Right now, Toronto looks absolutely fantastic, sitting at 12-1. and one. You know, again, there's a lot of time left, and the East is not quite like the West. You can make up time and make up games during the course of the season. And we know that Brad Stevens is one of the best coaches in the league, probably uh, a strong candidate for number two or at the worst, number three, behind Popovich and Steve Kerr. What I kind of see with the Celtics is that they do have a great coach, and oddly enough, maybe they have too much talent to kind of figure out a definitive lineup. And, you know, in this era of positionless basketball, it's kind of hard when you have multiple guys who are capable of doing the same thing. When I talk about multiple guys doing the same thing, what we're kind of looking at are having a Gordon Hayward, a Jalen Brown, a Jason Tatum. Um, you have three guys who kind of share similar skill sets, and those skill sets are probably mainly differentiated by experience and athleticism, right? So it's kind of, I guess, dictated by the matchup where you line guys up. It's very interesting. Um, Kyrie Irving hasn't quite gotten back into the flow yet. He's had a couple big games, but he hasn't quite gotten back into the flow of night in, night out being the producer. And that's another thing to me that's really interesting based on what they were able to do last year in the playoffs without him. So I have confidence that Brad Stevens is going to be able to pull this thing together and make it happen. Now, I don't know about winning the East, which is what we thought prior to the season, but it should be interesting. I think that you know that the NBA going into the season probably would have loved to see maybe uh, Celtics-Warriors matchup just because of the actual player matchups in the finals. And, you know, in the event that the Warriors didn't make it, I'm sure it would have been a dream matchup to have, obviously, Celtics-Lakers, the two banner franchises. They have the most championships. And um, you would have looked at another storyline that you would have loved to see on the final stage would have been LeVon versus Kyrie. We know that the NBA is all about marketing storylines, so that would have been fantastic for him. But what we need to do is just sit back, be a little bit patient, Lakers and Lakers fans less so, and just kind of see how it all works out for the Lakers and Celtics. So that's all I got for you today. Thanks for tuning in and uh, can't wait to be back with you next week. Do some more talk. And again, always remember, if you want to uh, reach out to me, you want to argue anything we talked about, you want to give me your thoughts, you can definitely hit me up on Twitter at Mr. Many Fats. That's at Mr. Many Fats. Hope to hear from you. Catch you next time on The Format.